0: Amen. You can be seated. It is really great to see you all here today. We're starting a new series today, and I got to say, I'm I'm very excited about it. Um, the new series is, as you've seen, what's the big deal about church? There's actually a lot of people, maybe many of you here, that have that same question: What's the big deal about church? Well, I have to say, I love, I love the church. In fact. I love our church. In fact, I love it so much that before it even became a church, before we were even anybody, knowing what God was going to do, knowing the kind of place it was going to be, that that we would be a family that would love each other, we we were able to secure the website, the URL, iloveourchurch.com. Now, we don't do a lot of liturgy here, but we're going to practice one. Whenever you hear me say, I love our church, I want you to say dot com. <laughs> ready? Ready? See, see, don't ever say we don't do that stuff here. So you ready? I love our church. <laughs> now see, you are able now to share our website with people because you know what it is, and that's where they can find the sermons to listen to online. They can see what's happening here. They can go back and look at stuff and see history and find out all about us. It's a good thing. Church is a good thing. I don't know what comes to your mind. When I say the word church, because my guess is in a crowd this big, there's a whole bunch of different things that come to mind when I say the word church, because I don't know your background. I don't know if you've been hurt by the church or, 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 or burned by the church or people into church. I know what that is to be hurt by the church, to be burned by the church. Maybe some of you do too. I don't know. Maybe some of you have been hurt or burned by me. Maybe I said something that offended you. If I didn't stick around. <laughs> <I> probably will. <laughs> but I don't know what you think of when you hear the word church. Maybe, maybe you don't know yet. Maybe you're, you're you know, your first time here, you're still here just kind of checking things out and you don't know what to think about it yet. Maybe you just heard, hey, that place has really good coffee. And that's all you know. And so that's why you came. Or maybe like I hear so often, the music is so good. Here's the music here. Just amazing. I just love worshiping here with our band and with you people. And and maybe, there, there, there's, there's many reasons, but maybe as I look around here in this service, maybe that you look around and you think, this is a pretty good place to meet girls, <laughs> or, or maybe to meet guys, you know, it's a good thing. And you know that I'm always here to help, and I want to do everything I can to help people, uh, and so if that's kind of the thing you're thinking when you came, I have some help for you today, some suggestions, all right? These are Christian pickup lines. Here's the first one. So last night I was reading in the book of Numbers and then I realized, I don't have yours. (laughs) I'm not saying they work. I don't know that for sure. Here's one related to that. Could I have your name and number for my prayer list? (laughs) You know, it's funny. It's just like in first service. I, I usually say, there's an outline in your worship folder to follow along with, and you can take notes on it. This is the first time I've actually seen some of you taking notes. <laughs> but that's okay. You might want to write some of these down. It's a good thing. Here's a third one. Guys, you can use this one. You're looking for a knight in shining armor? I just so happen to be wearing the armor of God. <laughs> and that's what you want to look for, girls. Um, another thing maybe is this, this last one here. You put the stud... In Bible study. (laughs) Again, I'm not saying any of these are going to work. I'm just saying you might want to try. I just want to spark your thinking a little bit because I understand that people think of a lot of different things and they come to church for a lot of different reasons. And by the way, when I say that you you can come here to, to meet a girl or to meet a guy, that's actually a very good reason to come to church. Because maybe some of you have horror stories of, I met somebody somewhere, and it didn't really turn out so great. Meeting somebody at church, we used to tell our kids, you want to look for somebody in the top 10%, you know? That's what you're looking for. And that's what you often find at church. But you'll find somebody who might believe the same as you, who might be going the same direction as you. I know that it can be a good place to meet someone. I met my wife at church. It's a good thing. So, if that's what you're looking for, that's fine. I know some of you are looking to... Could I move my seat now? Could I switch around? So, I don't know what comes to your mind. Maybe, for too many, you were like me when I was growing up. If somebody said the word church, what comes to my mind is boring. Because that's what it was like for the whole first part of my life. So, I don't know what comes to mind or what you feel when you hear the word church. But chances are, it is a far cry from what the first church people thought, or experienced. Nobody was bored in the first century. They didn't think about buildings or rows or, or hymnals or liturgy, okay? There was no Bibles or bands or banners or buildings or bulletins or anything else that starts with a B. They didn't have any of that stuff. The church was simply a gathering of people who came together around one belief. We looked at it last week, and that was this. That Jesus was the risen Christ, the son of the living God, and that was all they had. That was it. But that was enough. Because the church was a movement. And it got big starting from day one. Here's our first thought for today. You can write this down. Actually, I think I wrote it down for you in your outline. Church is a bigger deal than you think it is. So I don't know what you were thinking when you came in. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of church, but here's what I know. Church is a bigger deal than you think it is. And we're going to start at the basics, like like Vince Lombardi, you know, this is a football. We're just going to start by looking at the word church. Okay? Some, acclaim, some accuse us of not going too deep. We're going to go deep today. Okay? We looked at this before, but for those of you who are just kind of checking things out or haven't heard it yet, the word in the New Testament that's translated church- is the word... Go ahead and show this. In, in the Greek, it's ekklesia. Say that with me. Ekklesia. ekklesia. It doesn't matter that you say it. It's just fun to say, isn't it? Okay. Whenever you see the word church in the New Testament, that's the word behind it, ekklesia. Okay? And here's what it means. It's actually a compound word. We have, we have one part of that compound word over that door there, over that door there, and over many of the other doors that lead outside. The exit sign. The word ek. In ecclesia is that same thing, and the idea is out. You go out of something and into something else. So when you go out of the building, you go into the great outdoors. Beautiful spring in Minnesota. The other part of that word is from kaleo, which means to call. And literally, ecclesia, the literal translation is it's a group, it's an assembly, it's a gathering of people called out of something and into something else. And they're called out of something into the same thing. So they're a group that's kind of doing and feeling and experiencing and moving in the same direction. That's what the word literally means. The problem is the English term that we have, church, okay? That comes from an entirely different Greek word, entirely different. And the meaning of it is of the Lord. And that's not a bad thing. Kurios in Greek means Lord, and the word that that becomes church is a word that means of the Lord. This was a word that was picked up and adapted by these these Goth people, an East Germanic tribe, in like 300 AD, long time ago. Okay, I can't say the word. Go ahead and put the word up here. That's German, and I don't. I can't do the German pronunciation. You have to do weird things with your mouth or anything. But the 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 English phonetically in English when you say it, it sounds like church. It's like Kirk of some kind, but it sounds like the word church. It's literally, it means of the Lord, you know, place, house of the Lord, something. And it was not necessarily originally used for Christians and their gathering and what they did. It could be some pagan place where they met. It was of the Lord. It didn't mean of the same Lord that we serve. It could mean anything. But that word, Lord's house, that caused so many problems. The word church because that's a really bad translation. It's not about a place, the house of the Lord. That's not what church is. In the New Testament, every single time, it's ecclesia, it's an assembly called out. It's a group. It's a congregation of people. That's what it always is. This really bad translation led to some horrendous theology. The church became a place rather than a movement or a gathering. And it was tamed. It was, it was localized. And here's the problem. It was controlled by the people who controlled the building. That's what happened. For a long time. Until the 16th century. Some of the worst, most embarrassing history of the church happened during that time. And, and the things that were said and done. That's how it went for that whole time. The formal church controlled the building... They controlled the Bible because they didn't have the printing press yet. The Bible was something. The only people that had the Bible were the ones who controlled the building. The Bible was in Latin. They could read it, but none of the common people could read it. And it was actually against the law to have the Bible in your own language. And the reason is because you had to come to them on Sunday morning and hear what they had to say about what the Bible said. And you couldn't even look it up for yourself. They controlled the building. They controlled the Bible. They really controlled the people. And in many cases, in many places in the world, they controlled the government. It was a dark time for the church. Some really embarrassing things happened. And a lot of people know that history, and that's one of the things that turns them off about the church. It's like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. But then in the 16th century, this scholar, a linguist named William Tyndale, did something bold. Go ahead and show us his picture. This is William Tyndale. I tried to find a picture of him smiling. There's not one. When you know his story, you kind of understand why. Here's the amazing thing that black on his head, I don't think that's hair. It could be really weird, but I think it's like a hat of some kind. But when you look at him, and you look at the gray beard, and you look at the lines and stuff, you have to look at that, and then you have to look at the dates. He was born in 1494. He died in 1536. That's 42 years. That's a rough 42 years, people. <laughs> That's what it was like back then. William Tyndale is often referred to the fa- as, as the father of the English Bible because he translated and published the Bible in English, translating it from the original Greek and Hebrew texts. We think, yeah, big deal. It, it hadn't been done before, one. And two, it was extremely scandalous because it gave away the power of the church. He actually broke the law, translating it into English so a common person could have a Bible. God's timing is always perfect. And if you doubt that, you just look at William Tyndale. Before, just before William Tyndale, the um, Gutenberg invented the printing press. And instead of the church having these Bibles that were hand-copied, in Latin, so that only they could read it. Now, Tyndale could translate it into English, he could take it to the printing press, and he could have Bibles made so that a common person could actually have the Bible in their hands. This was unheard of, and it was was really scandalous, because it was taking away their power. Uh, he He was a bold guy. I think we'd have got along good. He once said to the bishops of the Church of England, talking about them and talking about the Pope, which is something you probably didn't do, at that time to them. He wanted, what he wanted and what they wanted were diametrically opposed. He wanted the scriptures in the hands of people. They wanted to keep the scriptures out of the hands of the common people. And probably his most famous quote is this. This is old English, so it sounds weird. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. I love that. You can say, I'm going to let the plowboy know more about God's word than you do because I'm going to get it into their hands. As you might guess, they didn't think that was as funny as we do. And in 1524, he had to flee England. So he left England and he went to Germany, where at the moment he was safe. And he actually, in Germany, published his first version of the New Testament in English and got it printed on the printing press there in Germany because of Gutenberg's printing press. And then he smuggled them back into England so that the people from his land could have the Bible in their own language. He continued translating the Bible. He continued finishing his work and publishing it and getting it shipped, you know, secretly back into England. And he continued doing that until a friend betrayed him. And this friend that betrayed him, um, he was then arrested and thrown in jail. I think for like a year or something like that. But at the end, they realized he wasn't going to stop doing what they do, what he was doing, and he was either um, hung or strangled and then burned at the stake in 1536, simply for translating the Bible into English. One of the things that drove the church leaders of his day absolutely crazy was that he translated "ecclesia" as congregation instead of church. And he moved the focus from a building to the people. And they hated that. But you know what? Tyndale was right. In Matthew 16, we find the first reference to the church. It hadn't started yet, but we find the first reference to the church. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and and he's trying to to see what they think, what the other people think. And he says, you know, who, who are people saying that I am? You know, what's the word on the street? And some were saying, oh, you know, you're like reincarnation of John the Baptist, or you're Elijah, come back from the dead, you know. And then Jesus looks at his disciples He says, who do you say I am? And in Mark 16, starting in verse 16, Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Christ, he says, the son of the living God. Jesus then replies, you are blessed, Simon, because that was his name, Simon, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. This was a revelation from God to Peter that Jesus is who he said he was. He was the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus then in verse 18 says a very famous verse that has caused incredible confusion for centuries. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly, my congregation. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Some of you are wondering why I had a a stone. You can see this rock on my my thing. It's just because here we like rock. (laughs) Here's the thing. This verse has been misapplied and mistranslated and used to bring weirdness into the church. And, it, and none of that needed to happen. Because here's what Jesus said. He said, Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, "That you didn't think of that on your own. Nobody told you that. God told you that. That's a revelation from God. And, and Jesus then looks at him and he says, now I say to you that you are Peter. It's the word Petros. Peter is Petros. It's a masculine noun which means small rock. Like the kind that as you're walking down the trail, you see a rock. I found this as I was walking around our church property up there on the north end of town. And you find it laying there, you pick it up. This is Petras. That's what it means. When Jesus said, upon this rock, you are Peter, you are Petras, little stone, and upon this rock, he didn't say you're Petros, and upon this rock, you, Peter, Jesus didn't build the church on him. He said, upon this rock, and this is emphasized in the original because of the order. And the word he used for rock there is not Petros. It's Petra. It's a feminine noun, and it means something different. It comes from the same root, but it means something different. It means this massive stone thing coming out of the ground. In fact, there's actually a place in Jordan, a very famous tourist site in Jordan, named after this. Go ahead and show the picture. This is Petra. I'd love to see it someday. You walk through this. You look it up on Google. It's very cool. You walk through this windy little thing, you know, between these big, massive rocks, and it comes out in this opening, and you think you're just out in the middle of the desert, and there's this, and there's all kinds of these amazing structures, but you see the rock behind it, That's why the place is called Petra, because that's what Petra means. Petra, this feminine noun, it's a, a, I'll read it, it's a mass of connected rock. It's distinct from Petras, which is the detached stone, or the thing you would find as you're walking. Petra is a solid or native rock rising up through the earth, a huge mass of rock, such as a projecting cliff. That's what Petra is. That's what Jesus said upon this Petra. What was he talking about? I always envisioned Jesus saying, You are Peter, you are Petras, you are you are the rock, Peter, but you're the stone upon this rock. Now that's what he might have said. And it could and, and that's a part of it because he is the cornerstone. But it can also be the rock of the revelation that God gave Peter. Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and Jesus said, That's right. God revealed that to you, Peter. You're Peter, the stone, and upon this rock of the revelation that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died for us, and that he rose from the dead. That's what the church is built on. That one thing, that Jesus rose from the dead. He died on the cross, and he was buried, just like he said, and he rose again. I'll tell you what, if somebody told me, in a little while, I'm going to die. They told me how they were going to die. They said, I'm going to die. Everybody's going to see it. I'm going to be buried in the ground. But three days later, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to walk around and talk to people again. I would look at them, and I would probably think, yeah, ooh, you know, a little bit off. If they did it, I'll tell you what, I would follow them. Because that never happened before. All of the major religions of the world, all of the leaders of the major religions of the world, you can go visit Their tomb, and they're still there. There's only one that has an empty tomb, and that's Jesus. He said, Upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, my assembly, my congregation, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Your translation may say hell, yours may say grave, yours may say uh, Hades or Sheol, or I don't know what the translations say. The best translation is really death. He says, All the powers of death will not conquer it. Because really what he's saying here is it doesn't matter in this new movement how many people die. It doesn't matter who dies. This will continue forever and ever and ever. Because the church was born as a movement of people around a simple message and a simple idea. It was not about a building. It was not about any of the things that it would quickly become in the few hundred years that followed. It would become and continue to be a movement. Not long after Jesus said this, he was crucified. He rose from the dead, just like he said. We celebrated that last week, and he spent about 40 days with his followers. After being crucified, after being buried, he's up. Out of the grave, walking around with people for 40 days in Jerusalem. And after about 40 days, he gathers them on this hillside. And he gives them his final instructions. Matthew, we call it the Great Commission. But in the book of Acts, there's a version where Jesus just, here's your final instructions, people. And he predicts, and, and this is what's so cool. He predicts the beginning of the church and his final instructions to them. He's already said that on this idea, that this revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, he says, I'm going to launch this movement. And I'm going to launch this multiplying gathering of people. And just before he leaves the planet, he gathers with the 12, actually the 11 now. They're going to replace the one later. He's got Mary there. He's got, uh, the Bible says his brothers were there. We're pretty sure his sisters were there, his family. Maybe like a hundred other people. That's like... Um, we, have, we have almost twice that many people in this room right now. That's how many, he had about half of this number gathered on that hillside. And here's what he told them in Acts chapter 1. So when they met together, they ask him, and they're talking to Jesus, okay? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I read that, and it's like, if Jesus ever did a face palm, that was it. It's like, oh my goodness. You see, they weren't thinking in terms of a growing, gathering, multicultural, multi-ethnic thing that we would call this movement of the church. They were thinking Jesus was going to establish his kingdom, and it was going to be this Jewish thing. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. He said that to this little group of people. When the Holy Spirit comes in, I you know. We don't know what they thought, but I have a pretty good imagination. So I think they're thinking when they hear this power, you receive power. Power is a good thing. Power sounds good. We're going to get power. We're going to get some special kind of power, but what are we supposed to do with this power? And he says this, and you will be, as a result of this power, you will be my witnesses comes from a, a, a term, it's just a little term that means the same thing as when you talk about a, a witness in court. Somebody who testifies to something, somebody who will accurately represent an event, somebody who will accurately represent what a person did, what a person said. That's what a witness does. And Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they were at the time. And in Judea, which is the broader area around them, and Samaria, which was an area they didn't like to go, because there was people there they were always arguing with, and they didn't like them, and they didn't want to go there. But he said, and to the ends of the earth. He's saying that to this little group of people on the hillside. Now again, we don't know what they thought, but I can imagine, you know, you're standing with a man who Rome just crucified, and Rome was really good at their job and they killed him but three days later he came back you're standing with a man who the religious leaders hated and there's about a hundred of you and he says hey here's what's going to happen you're going to take the message of me you're going to take my teaching you're going to take the fact that you are eyewitnesses of the resurrection and you're going to take this message all over Jerusalem and they're looking at each other saying okay Jerusalem we can do Jerusalem that's good And then Judea, okay, yeah, we can do Judea. We can spread out a little more. Samaria, yeah, we don't even like to go there. But the rest of the world, and I have no doubt they looked at each other and it's like, the rest of the world, Jesus, time out. Do you know how big the world is? (laughs) And Jesus would have said, you don't know how big the world is. All you see is the Roman world. You think that's all there is. But this message, this movement, this gathering, this momentum that we are going to create is going to touch every single part of the world. And do you realize that's exactly what has happened? This is one of the most significant prophecies to me in the entire Bible. You know why? Because in some way, we are a fulfillment of that. Of those words that Jesus said. We're part of that. And then Jesus departed. Send it. Floated up to heaven. Remember the angel said, in the same way you saw him go, he's coming back. So you have a job to do until he comes back. So be ready and be working. And this little group of 100 to 120 people went back to Jerusalem to wait. He didn't tell them wait X number of days, weeks, months, years. He just said wait. They went back to Jerusalem, they met together, they began to pray together a lot. Luke, in the Bible, who researched all this, tells us, it was the apostles, It was some women, including Mary, the brothers of Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, what Pentecost is, Pentecost means 50. And what they did, there was this, this feast, had Passover, which a bunch of people would come for. But then they had this feast of Pentecost. And where the 50 comes from is, it was seven weeks There's seven days in a week. So seven weeks is 49 days. And it was this whole harvest gathering thing. And on the 50th day, that was Pentecost. On the 50th day, it says on the day of Pentecost, this Jewish feast was a big deal for Jews. And Jerusalem would have been full of Jews and converts to Judaism from all over the world. See, God's timing is always perfect. And the Holy Spirit fell on the men and the women in the room that 100, 120 people, what was the evidence of that? It says they could speak in the language of the Jews from all of those different regions who were visiting Jerusalem for that feast. And the question on their lips was, how can these, and literally they're saying, how can these ignorant Galileans speak our language? Luke lists 14 different groups that heard in their own language. I'm not sure I could list 14 languages. Here's what I think happened, though. It wasn't like um, one of the the people spoke in this language and one spoke in this. When you read it, the sense that you get is the guy from this one place hears them speaking, and he says, holy cow, how are they speaking in my language? And the guy next to him is from somewhere completely different, he says, they're not speaking in your language, they're speaking in my language. And they realize that everybody's hearing them in their own language. And they realize, well, at first they thought, these guys are drunk. (laughs) And it's like, no, I've heard drunk people. They don't speak in real languages. (laughs) They're different, but they're not real languages. And here's what's so important about this. This was not a Jewish movement or message. From the very first day, Jesus was right. It's for the entire world. Everybody there could hear it in their own language. And they see that. These people there for the feast see that and they say, what does this mean? So Peter, Peter gets up and preached the first sermon in the history of the church. And here's why this is so important. This is the same Peter that 50 days earlier, 53 days earlier, had denied Jesus. Three times the night he went to trial. The same Peter that turned his back on Jesus and said, I have nothing to do with him. I don't know who he is. And he did that three times. He's the same guy who preached the sermon, the first sermon in the history of the church. You know what? That gives me such great hope because God restores broken people. That the very beginning of the church God is restoring and using broken people. That's what kind of a congregation and assembly he's creating. Restored broken people. I want to share with you just a a brief part of that sermon. We don't actually probably have the whole sermon. We have Luke's synopsis of it. And I, I won't share even all of that with you. But I just want to read some of it so you get a flavor of exactly what happened. This is the first sermon ever preached for church. It was the first thing that ever happened. He says, people of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. When he says that, these are people who had watched him do the miracles, heal the people, heal the blind, heal heal the deaf, feed the 5,000, feed the 4,000. They had watched him do these things. He said, you know that. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. They knew that. Fifty days, 53 days earlier, they had seen it happen. Verse 24, but God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. I love how he says this. For death could not keep him in its grip. God, it says in verse 32, Peter says, God raised Jesus from the dead. And we're all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven. At God's right hand and the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. And they couldn't deny it. They had seen it. They had heard it. Peter says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. And it says, Peter's words pierced their heart. They said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said, you need to get dressed up and you need to go to church every Sunday. And you need to, (laughs) not." There was none of that. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, you've turned to God, you've believed, you've received, turned to God, baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's been misunderstood a lot because people think, well, you have to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Think about this for a minute. This is is, um, honesty time. I need to see a show of hands. How many of you have ever got a ticket for speeding? How many of you, when you got that ticket, you said, Oh, look, I got a ticket for speeding. That means I can speed! No. You got a ticket for speeding. You were speeding, so you got a ticket. When you get baptized for the forgiveness of sins, you don't get baptized and your sins are forgiven. You believe and receive Jesus and your sins are forgiven, so you get baptized. It's kind of like a ticket, (laughs) but in a good way. So he says, this is what you need to do. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit which is what they had just experienced, these guys had, this promises to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the name of the Lord. And it says in verse 40, then Peter continued preaching for a long time. And I emphasize that because you can't say anything if I go late. (laughs) Because he preached for a long time. That was the first time. That set the precedent. Verse 41 says this, those who believed... What Peter said. They accepted the message, it said. They were baptized, added to the church that day, the church that, oh, by the way, just started that moment, about 3,000 in all. 3,000 people from 14 different language groups believed. You know, sometimes people say to me, when I talk about our church, they say, I don't really like a big church. And I would say, you would not have enjoyed opening day. You might not enjoy heaven. Just as Jesus predicted, it was a gathering of all people that rallied around one idea. Jesus is the resurrected Christ, the son of the living God. You see... At that moment, you couldn't go to church. You were the church. The church wasn't for church people. There weren't any church people. The church wasn't about a location. They didn't have a location. The church wasn't about style or about liturgy or about ritual. There wasn't any of that. The mission of the church was to do one thing, create followers of Jesus Christ. And from that day forward... There has always been a group that has refused to let go of that ideal. That has refused to make it just a building. It's men like William Tyndale, who defied the church leaders when they sought to make it something else. And people like many of you, who give and serve and invite people and and cheer when someone gets baptized. People who realize that when you gather in your home or in your office, you are the church. People who realize that when you serve the poor, you are the church. When you pray for the sick, you are the church. When you live out the values of Jesus. And because of that, you might feel like an outcast in your school or your office or your home. You are the church. It's why why we do what we do here. It's why we plan big things. It's why we raise money and train leaders. Because we agree with Peter that Jesus is the Christ. The son of the living God. So I don't know what comes to your mind when you feel, or what you feel when you hear that word, church. But from now on, I hope that you will think a, a multiplying multicultural gathering of people who believe that Jesus is the Savior and who lives and reflects that teaching. So you say, how? How do we do that? It's right there in the book of Acts. When the first church began, it tells us what they did. Here's the things that the church does. The first thing, start with your focus on Jesus. That's what they did. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We keep our eyes focused on Him. We keep looking at Him because that's who it's all about, is Him. We worship Him. We focus on Him. We follow Him. So first, to start with your focus on Jesus, second is reach more people for Jesus. That's what they did. They started with their focus on Jesus and they started reaching more people for Jesus. And they did that by sharing the hope that they had so that when somebody says, why are you like you? you? are. You're one of those, remember our stranger people thing? Why are you like that? Why are you different? Why do you have hope even when things aren't going good in your life and you have a reason for the hope and it's Jesus? And so we reach more people for Jesus. And at our church, it can be just by inviting people. You invite people to church because we have been and always will be a church that welcomes everybody. We accept everybody. It doesn't mean we approve of everything you do because God accepts you, but he doesn't approve of everything you do. But we're going to leave it up to him to change it because he doesn't accept you to leave you as you are. He accepts you to change you and make you better. But we want to be the kind of place to continue to be the kind of place that on any Sunday you can invite someone to that doesn't know Jesus and to hear about the hope and the good news. So you start with your focus on Jesus. You reach more people for Jesus. The third thing they did that we should do is build good relationships. They realized right away they could not do it together. I don't know if you've ever tried to make some major change in your life, try to give up something, try to, to have something be better in your life. When you do it alone, it doesn't work. We are better together. We have to do it with other people. And the reality is, you need two different kinds of people in your life. Everybody does. You need somebody in your life that's further along than you, that's helping you up, that's keeping you on the straight and narrow, that's, that's encouraging you, that's pointing out things that you need to point out in your life, that's encouraging you and helping you. But you also need people in your life who you are doing that to, who you're helping who you're holding accountable, who you are encouraging. That's what they did in the church from day one. They realized we can't do this alone. We're better together. So you start with your focus on Jesus. You reach more people for Jesus. You build good relationships. And the fourth thing is you grow stronger in your faith. And and they literally, they met every day, the first church. They met in the temple courts. They were too big to fit in any one. I mean, there was no room there that held 3,000 people. And that was just on day one. It said after that, God added to the church daily people who were being saved. So the first church was multi-site. They met in all of these different locations on the Lord's Day on Sunday, but they met in smaller groups from house to house every day. And they did that because they wanted to grow in their faith. None of them have ever heard this before. And they were being taught and they were growing. And so that's what we do. Start with your focus on Jesus Reach more people for Jesus. Build good relationships. Grow stronger in your faith. In your faith. And as what and the fifth one is use what you have and are to serve others. That's what they did. You can read the story in Acts. That's what they did. The church began as a movement. I had a wise person once tell me, Movements move. <laughs> That's why they're called that. The church is not a building. It's a movement. And it's still moving. And by God's grace, we will be a part of that movement. A church for this generation, for this community that reaches people with the good news. So we're going to pick up the story of the church next week. You have to come back next week. And thanks to William Tyndale, you can read ahead. Because if it wasn't for him, we couldn't. So I'd like you to bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray. Father, we we, we think of the fact that when that first church started, it was uh, people from all over, from all backgrounds. That it was never about a building, that it was about a movement focused on the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And my prayer, Father, is that all, all of the people listening right now to this that have already stepped across that line from unbelief to belief, and they've claimed Jesus as Savior, that we would have not only a renewed vision of what the church really is, but that we would have a renewed passion for being the church. That it wouldn't be about going to church. That it would be about being the church. And that we would continue this movement that Jesus started 2,000 years ago. And that we would see our sphere of influence and our workplace and our family and our classmates come to know Jesus because of that. And Father, for anyone listening who is, they're not a part of that movement. They've always looked at church as that institutional thing, that place that you go to. I pray that today they would hear that still, small voice, as you tell them, this is why I brought you here. To hear that it's not about a building. It's not about the the hypocrites or the the broken, sinful people that have hurt you. It's about Jesus. And to be a part of that family and a part of that movement, it's as simple as saying, Jesus, I believe that what you did was for me. You are who you said, the Christ, the Son of the living God that you died for me, that you rose again for me, and because of that, I want to be part of that movement, part of that family. And by simply turning to him and believing and receiving Jesus, we can become children of God, we can become part of your family, we can become part of this movement. And Father, my prayer is that in simple faith, anyone who doesn't know you would turn to you and see what a radical change you can make in their life. Thank you. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the closing song. And that's what we want you doing, running into that marvelous light. So I don't know if any of you this morning realize that you weren't part of that movement, and you asked Jesus, you, received, you believe that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you ask him to be your Savior, please, in fact, if you did that, like with the other 20 people last week who asked Jesus to be their Savior, we would like to welcome you into the battle. And please don't keep it to yourself. On the, on the welcome desk in the back are communication cards. You can put your name and information on here and let us know that you made that decision so that we can, we can help you. If you need a Bible, we can get you a Bible. We're in this together. We do this together. And remember, one of the things is we get good people around us because we do this together. Journey North is here to help people find true north on this journey called life. And we do that together. And in fact, this is the week... For journey groups, I think this is the women's week, and they're meeting here, right, 6.30 to 8, so if you're part of that, this week is a women. If you're not, you want to be part of one of the groups, you just show up here at 6.30 on Tuesday night, and you can be a part of that. I know there's something I'm forgetting. Oh, oh yeah. I love our church. And have I told you lately that I love you? I love our church. I love our church. Okay, okay. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for demonstrating that love by coming and living for us, dying for us. But we are so grateful that you rose again demonstrating everything that you said was true. We believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And based on that, we want to be a part of this movement that changes the world for Jesus. Thank you. We love you. And it's in your son Jesus name we pray. Amen.